Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And it's time to bring you another deep dive episode, and uh, Chris, this is a big one. It is. It's a Stanley Kubrick big one. (laughs) (laughs) That didn't really come out right. (laughs) And I somehow feel like that's probably not accurate, so (laughs) I don't know. Who am I to judge? Stanley Kubrick's big one. I can only compare it to this one. And um, so we're going to talk about The Shining today. That's right. Um, So The Shining is a 1980 psychological horror film produced and directed by Stanley Kubrick, co-written by Diane Johnson. The film is based on Stephen King's 1977 novel of the same name and stars Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Scatman Crothers, and Danny Lloyd. Production took place almost entirely at England's Elstree Studios, with sets based on real locations. Kubrick often worked with a small crew, which allowed him to do many, many takes, sometimes to the exhaustion of the actors and staff. The new Steadicam mount was used to shoot several scenes, giving the film an innovative and immersive look and feel at the time. Stephen King has openly criticized the film due to its many deviations from his novel, and there were several versions for the theatrical release, each of which were cut shorter than the one preceding it, and in total about 27 minutes were cut. There has been much speculation into the meanings and actions of the film because of various inconsistencies, ambiguities, and symbolism. Over the years, critical response has grown more favorable, and the film has definitely found a place in pop culture. All right, listeners darlings light of our lives come play with us forever and ever here's the shining i don't suppose they uh told you anything in denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970 i hired a man named charles grady is the winter caretaker from what i've been told i mean he seemed like a completely normal individual But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his family with an axe. Well, you can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Mom, do you really want to go and live in that hotel for the winter? Sure I do. It'll be lots of fun. The only thing that can get a bit trying up here during the winter is uh, the tremendous sense of isolation. Is there something bad here? I fear you will have to deal with this matter in the harshest possible way. I do that. I killed you with Danny. You did this to me. Didn't you? I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Here's Johnny. Teacher-turned-writer Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson, arrives at the remote Overlook Hotel in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado to interview for the position of winter caretaker. 
During the interview, hotel manager Stuart Ullman informs Jack that the hotel, built in 1909 and reportedly on a Native American burial ground, closes during the snowed-in winter months to avoid high operating costs of maintaining the hotel and roads for guests. He warns Jack about how this position could bring overwhelming feelings of isolation and claustrophobia. Jack insists that he'll be using this quiet time to complete a writing project. Ullman then tells Jack the story of a previous caretaker, Charles Grady, who went mad and murdered his wife and two daughters before finally killing himself. Nevertheless, Jack is impressed by the hotel and accepts the position. Back in Boulder, Jack's wife Wendy, played by Shelley Duvall, and son, Danny, played by Danny Lloyd, are having lunch and discuss the idea of living at the Overlook, which does not excite Danny, or his imaginary friend Tony for that matter. After lunch, Tony shares horrifying visions of the Overlook with Danny, including blood pouring from an elevator, causing him to black out. A doctor is summoned to examine him and finds him to be physically normal. Wendy shares with the doctor that Jack is a recovering alcoholic and has severely injured Danny in a drunken rage in the past. The family travels to the Overlook on closing day to begin their stay, and are given a tour of the property by Ullman, including the giant hedge maze outside the main building. Danny plays in the game room during the tour and is visited by two ghostly twin girls. Frightened, he joins the tour with Wendy as head cook Dick Halloran, played by Scatman Crothers, is showing her around the kitchen. While in the pantry, Dick surprises Danny by telepathically asking if he would like some ice cream. Dick talks to Danny about their shared telepathic gift and explains to him that he and his grandmother shared this ability, which she called Shining. Halloran tells Danny that the Overlook has a shine of its own, and it has its own memories. Danny scans Halloran's mind and asks him about room 237. Halloran tells him to stay away from that room. The family settles into life at the hotel, and Halloran travels to Florida for the winter. A month passes. Jack spends his days writing on his typewriter despite his mental health starting to deteriorate, as he becomes more and more prone to angry outbursts. Wendy and Danny explore the hotel and its grounds, including the hedge maze. A massive snowstorm hits the area, and Wendy learns that the phone lines are down when she calls forest rangers on the CB radio. Danny begins to have frightening visions and again meets the twin girls when riding his trike through the hallways. They invite him to come play with them. Forever. One day, when riding his trike through the hallways, Danny notices the door to room 237 has been opened and decides he might as well take a look. Meanwhile, Wendy finds Jack screaming in his sleep at his typewriter and wakes him from the nightmare, which he says involved him brutally murdering Wendy and Danny. Danny arrives to the room, visibly traumatized and bruised about the neck and face. Wendy accuses Jack of hurting him, which he denies. Angry, Jack wanders the hotel and makes his way into the gold room, a massive ballroom with a bar. Jack sits at the bar and meets a ghostly bartender named Lloyd. Lloyd pours Jack a glass of bourbon, and Jack complains about his marriage and family life. Wendy enters hysterically and tells Jack that Danny was attacked by a crazy woman in room 237. Jack investigates and encounters the ghost of a beautiful young woman in the bathtub. She saunters to Jack and the two share a kiss. While they embrace, Jack notices in the mirror that her appearance has changed. She is now a hideous old rotten corpse. He flees from the room in terror but tells Wendy that he saw nothing. The two argue as to whether or not Danny should be taken away from the hotel to a doctor, while Danny telepathically calls Halloran for help. 
Jack returns to the gold room, now filled with partygoers dressed in a 1920s style. Lloyd plies him with more bourbon, and Jack meets a ghostly waiter, Delbert Grady, after the two accidentally collide. The two head to the restroom to clean Jack's clothes, and Jack deduces that the waiter was actually the former caretaker that murdered his family, which Grady denies. Grady, however, tells Jack that Danny has contacted Halloran with his telepathic gift, and suggests that Jack correct his family of their errors in judgment. Meanwhile, Danny has completely reverted to a trance-like state and only refers to himself as Tony, the imaginary friend, while receiving visions of the word red rum. Armed with a bat, Wendy searches for Jack and comes across his writing table. She finds that Jack has been typing, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, over and over on all the pages, hundreds of them. Jack catches her, and she begs him to leave the overlook with Danny, but he threatens her. She beats him about the head with the bat, and Jack falls unconscious after falling down a flight of stairs. Wendy drags Jack to the kitchen and locks him in the pantry. Through the locked door, Jack informs Wendy that he has disabled the radio and the snowcat, trapping them at the hotel. Halloran becomes increasingly worried when he cannot reach the family over the phone or radio and flies to Colorado to make the long journey to the hotel through the snow. Meanwhile, Grady appears outside the pantry and releases Jack after making him promise to correct the situation with his family. Upstairs, Danny begins chanting Red Rum and draws the word on a door with lipstick. The commotion awakens a sleeping Wendy, who sees the word in a mirror, revealing Red Rum to actually be murder spelled backwards. Immediately upon this realization, Jack begins to hack through the door with an axe. Wendy and Danny lock themselves in the bathroom and Danny escapes through a window outside, doubles back and hides in the hotel. Jack breaks through the bathroom door but retreats when Wendy slices his hand with a knife. Jack hears Halloran approaching in a rented snowcat and ambushes him as he enters the hotel, slamming his axe deep into Halloran's chest, killing him. Jack then finds Danny in his hiding place and pursues him outside and into the giant hedge maze. A frantic Wendy runs through the hotel, encountering many different ghosts, including a cascade of blood pouring from an elevator, Dick Halloran's corpse, and of course, lest we forget, a man in a puppy play getup giving a businessman a blowjob. In the hedge maze, Danny is attempting to cover his tracks in the snow, causing Jack to lose his bearings and become lost. Danny escapes the maze as Wendy flees the hotel. The two find each other and escape in Halloran's snowcat, while Jack, hopelessly lost in the maze, freezes to death. As Wendy and Danny escape to safety, a photograph in the empty hotel hallway reveals Jack in the forefront of a group of partygoers attending a ball, dated July 4th, 1921. The end? It is questionable. The Shining was released on May 23rd, 1980, the same weekend as The Empire Strikes Back and The Going Show Movie, which came in numbers one and two at the box office over the four-day weekend, respectively. However, The Shining was only shown on 10 screens and made a little more than $622,000 on opening weekend, which actually made it one of the most successful films to open on less than 50 screens. Mm. Over the upcoming weeks, the film expanded and, with word of mouth, became a very popular movie in the summer of 1980, eventually making Warner Brothers a profit. 
Ultimately, The Shining would gross over $44 million against a budget of $19 million. The film was re-released to theaters in 2001, 2012, 2017, and 2019, and also 2020 for its 40th anniversary, adding in the box office totals from all re-releases, it's grossed more than $46 million. So two It's only two million. more million. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we don't really know the full... I, I don't know the, what, what it was initial was. The $44 million seems a little high for 1980. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it was a popular movie, you know, and a lot of people saw it, so yeah, it's possible. Uh, reception, though, is another story. So, The Shining has an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes currently, and it's certified fresh, with an audience score of 93%. The site's consensus reads, Though it deviates from Stephen King's novel, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is a chilling, often baroque journey into madness, exemplified by an unforgettable turn from Jack Nicholson. What do you what do you think the meaning of the word baroque is here? Uh, so when I think of baroque, I think of like Johann Sebastian Bach, right? That's like <laughs> the 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 time frame reference that I have. And yeah. so I mean, I think that that word is not quite used correctly here. I think what they really mean is sort of like gothic, right? I think gothic would have been a much better word than baroque. I think gothic would be too. Although I did actually, I was just asking what you thought because when I thought, I thought the exact same thing. So I actually went to dictionary.com and looked up baroque <laughs> and a secondary meaning is something that's super detailed and often like ostentatiously designed, oh. but has no fill or has um, like, especially concerning narratives uh, is convoluted. Okay. I get it. I see that. So I see what they're saying. Yeah. So if it ain't baroque, don't watch it (laughs) which is actually often an oft way of criticizing a kubrick film yes really i would say that he oftentimes will um forego narrative structure or even characterization for a more visual storytelling aspect Yeah. yeah And that brings us to the way the film opened, because it opened to mostly mixed reviews. Janet Maslin, I think one of our favorites that we often quote, who I think we mostly disagree with, but she actually praised Nicholson's performance uh, and the Overlook Hotel as an effective setting for horror, but wrote that the supernatural story knows frustratingly little rhyme or reason. Even the film's most startling horrific images seem overbearing and perhaps irrelevant. Roger Ebert complained that it was too hard to connect with any of the characters. In his review, Gene Siskel gave it two out of four stars and called it a crashing disappointment that says that its biggest surprise is that it contains virtually no thrills. (laughs) We always hate Gene Siskel's reviews, though. Good old Gene Siskel. Just calling it what it is, I guess. I don't know. I don't know that I agree with that, actually, but we'll get into that, I'm sure. But these mixed reviews did not last forever. Tim Cahill, in a Rolling Stone interview with Kubrick, noted that there was already a critical reevaluation in process. As with most of Kubrick's films, more recent analyses have treated The Shining much more favorably. In 2006, Roger Ebert, though originally critical of the film, added it to his greatest movie series, saying, Stanley Kubrick's cold and frightening The Shining challenges us to decide. Who is the reliable observer? Whose idea of events can we trust? It is the elusive open-endedness that makes Kubrick's film so strangely disturbing. And you know what? He's the only reviewer that thinks that this story is ambiguous in any way. Yeah. (laughs) He's written about that several times. And we're going to talk about a a little bit more about that later uh, when we discuss like the meaning and some of the, even the conspiracies behind this film. But um, 
yeah, I, I mean, I feel like we've seen Roger Ebert do that at least two or three times now with horror movies where mm-hmm. he initially shits on it and then puts it in his like best films list like two or three days, decades later or something. Well, and it's like there's a lot of people who sort of like naysay horror films and then eventually later on in life go back and say, you know what, there's a message here. And I mean, I, Ebert does that a lot. So I think we can trust his second judgment of a lot of these movies. For real. Yeah. It's just, he should know himself, you know, well, he's dead now, rest in peace. Yeah. He should have realized later, I mean, at least a a decade into his reviews that, you know, the first time he watches a horror movie, he's not going to like it. At least like, and I'm not sure that we see this from a lot of critics, even today. I don't think people go back revisit and then, you know, have the balls enough to say I was wrong on my first viewing and then, you yeah, know, I'll publish something. Yeah. So the film did get some accolades. Uh, although this is the only Kubrick film to not be nominated for any Oscars or golden globes. Yeah. Um, at the Saturn awards, it was nominated for best director. He lost to the director of empire strikes back. Um, it was nominated for best music and the person nominated for that award was Bella Bartok. <laughs> so, yeah. And, um, it was also nominated well, for best horror film. Bella Bartok did like one track though she didn't do the whole okay yeah so i mean but that so i i looked up the nominees and that's that's what was listed right and uh best horror film that year actually went to the howling which we recently covered interesting yeah yeah it actually won best supporting actor uh for scatman crothers so i think that's well deserved a good one yeah it was also nominated for Worst Actress and Worst Director at the Razzies. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Neither of which deserve that. No, I don't think so. I mean, we'll talk about performances Certainly. later on. So The AFI has recognized the film several times. In 2001, it was ranked number 29 on the 100 Years 100 Thrills list. In 2003, the character of Jack Torrance was 25th villain on the 100 Years 100 Heroes and Villains list. And in 2005, it was number 68 on 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes for the crowd favorite, Here's Johnny, line. The Shining has definitely found a place in pop culture, and there are parodies of the film everywhere. For instance, the Simpsons 1994 episode Treehouse of Horror 5 included a parody titled The Shinnin, (laughs) which Homer writes, No TV and no beer make Homer go crazy. (laughs) The season 30 2019 episode, Girls in the Band, has Homer going mad from working double shifts, experiencing a gold room party scene with Lloyd, and being followed by an axe-wielding HR rep who looks a lot like Jack Nicholson. I fucking love both these episodes. I mean, like, one day in October, well, one month in October, we should probably do, like, a top 10 Treehouse of Horror segments episode. Like, we have to. Although, I mean, like... That's probably got to be number one. You shoot the fucking. Well, now. yeah, maybe cartoon parodies too, because I, I, there's the South Park parody of Poltergeist as well as the South Park parody of Children of the Corn. That's right, and probably others that that need to be watched as well. Oh yeah, there's a ton, ton. In his 2018 film Ready Player One, Steven Spielberg recreated the Overlook in a sequence that he considers to be an homage to Kubrick, who was a close friend of his. Even Stephen King has referenced the movie. In his 2019 novel The Institute, King writes of identical girls clutching dolls, which makes a character remember twins from some old horror movie. <laughs> mm, yeah. yeah, I do like that uh, reference in Ready Player One. 
because I don't believe that was in the book at all. No. But I loved it in the movie. It was special to me, although it was a little cartoony. But that's, I mean, the whole point of Ready Player One. Yeah, I thought that game, right? I thought that was a like just an incredibly well done sequence in that movie. Um, I yeah. liked that movie a lot, actually. I also liked the book. My husband just rewatched Ready Player One, and we were having conversations about The Shining. Um, and so I, I think that he he also appreciates that part in that movie. It's just so well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In 1997, uh, Stephen King wrote and produced a remake miniseries for network television directed by Mick Garris. While this version is more faithful to the novel, the miniseries was seen as being too literal and filled with cheesy FX. It currently has a 57% on Rotten Tomatoes. I watched this when it came out. I remember where I was and what room I was sitting in. And I remember my sister getting freaked out and crying because the uh, topiary animals uh came to life and that didn't happen in the original shining movie um but it does in the book and so uh that was something that really really scared her uh and i I think i tried to go back and watch that miniseries again but it is it's too 90s it suffers the same problem as going back and watching rose red a little bit although rose red is better in my opinion you know it's, it's it's just a little it's dated you know it's it's more dated than the shining is if that's possible I completely agree with you. And I mean, I was super excited for that miniseries to be released, right? Because I mean, I was a huge fan of the novel and, and I mean, I'd seen the original shining so many times and you know, when that came out, I liked it. I remember liking it, but I I have since revisited that miniseries and it's just not, it doesn't hold up very well. So Mm -hmm. good try though. (laughs) Yeah. It's just like a lot of the bit humor and, and like TV scares both in that and some of it in uh, Rose Red are just so dated compared to today's horror. At least Kubrick is elevated enough in The Shining that it doesn't feel dated. I think we can safely say, though, is that like Stephen King, you know, is still experiencing sort of like a renaissance when it comes to oh, yeah. Hollywood. And I mean, it's people are going to make and remake his work you know, all over the place. And so there could be another one at some point. Oh know? yeah. No, yeah. this is the problem is not with the writing. The problem is with the direction and, and how they, they brought it out on screen uh, on screen. I should say <laughs> instead of scream <laughs> or both <laughs> or lack of scream. <laughs> In 2019, Mike Flanagan released the sequel, Dr. Sleep, but we're not going to go too far into that right now. Yeah. We might be uh, dropping a deep dive episode next week about that. We might be. <laughs> <laughs> And I doubt it's going to be as long as this one, though. I don't know. We'll see. And finally, this uh, this year, HBO Max announced that a spinoff series called The Overlook has entered production. That's right. And this is, um, I mean, from what I've read so far, it's J.J. Uh, Abrams produced. And um, it's going to be telling really? stories of The Overlook, you know, before the Torrances moved. In. Do you know if Stephen King is involved in any way? Uh, no, uh, not, not that I'm aware of. But I, okay. I think that oh. King trusts abrams with his work well jj abrams is known for his mystery box right and so he never is going to explain anything but we already kind of know the explanation Mm -hmm. so i don't know it'd be interesting to see if he continued some of the mythology that kind of was unveiled in dr sleep with that and it would be great to see so i'm on board i mean i'll watch it for sure yeah So. so let's uh let's talk about the cast a little bit right starting with jack nicholson pretty iconic performance for this i I don't want to say this this movie kind of put him on the map because we've also got uh the one who flew over the cuckoo's nest which i think came over come out earlier than this yes and those are the two earliest roles that i know him from um you know i my movie timeline for jack nicholson may be wrong but i i'm sure that he was already a household name by the time the shining was released chinatown cuckoo's nest and i think chinatown came out around that time as well 
Yeah, I mean, and he he had some like bit parts in other movies, but I mean, Chuck Nicholson, he was already doing his thing, and people knew who he was, right? So, yeah, and of course, he would go on to have an illustrious career. Yes, very much. I mean, yeah, nominated for Oscars. I'm not even sure if he's won one. I should probably look that up, but <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I just I just watch any movie from any decade up until like. Uh, the 2010s you know anything from this to the departed and it's like you know look this person can act <laughs> he is uh definitely a heavyweight actor of his of his generation oh yeah definitely and i i think that we will look back on jack nicholson's entire career and i mean from movies like the departed like you said i'm just now looking him up on imdb and i mean so things like as good as it gets hoffa a few good men he was joker for god's sakes in the batman right and um before the shining yeah chinatown was from 1974 so i mean he he was already a leading man as far as hollywood was concerned oh god so he's had to work with some of the most difficult people in all of hollywood including kubrick and then his co-lead in chinatown what fade down away Fend oh, away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who directed yeah. that? Was it a Friedkin movie too? I don't like, yeah, I, just like. I don't know. I think the French connection was Friedkin. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's how. Um, but anyway, yeah, Faye Dunaway is known. I mean, even Betty Davis is like, I will never work with Faye Dunaway again. She is unprofessional. <laughs> Poor Faye Dunaway. <laughs> Well, then that she like did. She was the one who misread that Oscar. She was winner, like, even right? Joan Crawford was a professional. She's like, Faye Dunaway is a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, she's she's the forever tarnished because she was given that wrong envelope at the Oscars a couple of years ago, and she said La La Land when it was really Moonlight. So I mean, like, yeah. she won't be hired again anyway. So, yeah. and that wasn't yeah. even her fault. Do you think Jack Nicholson was the right casting for this role? No. I think he's the right casting for the last half of the movie. <laughs> I think he's the right casting for Kubrick's vision. Yes. That's a very good answer. Yeah. I, but as far as Jack Torrance, you know, and then like at some point in this podcast, I do want to talk about the differences between the book and the movie. Right. But I mean, I think for what, for what Kubrick was going for, I think that, yeah, I think Nicholson is good. I think that he does a good job in this movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as the character of Jack Torrance, no, he's not the person that I would choose. No. Yeah. I think it's supposed to be more of a flip, especially in the novel, you know, it's supposed to be more of a transition versus Jack Nicholson right from the beginning of this film is fucking crazy. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> at the interview, I was yeah. watching this and I was just like, I would never hire him. I was just like, <laughs> <laughs> crazy eyes. Yeah. <laughs> He's just always arching his eyebrows and he was like, well, that's fascinating. And I'm like, well, <laughs> thanks for coming in. <laughs> You're going to kill us all. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. Uh, ironically, you know, who played um, who's the actor that played uh, Elliot and E.T. and what actually played Jack Torrance in The Doctor Sleep? Henry Thomas. Henry Thomas. I feel like Henry Thomas from um, Haunting of uh, Hill House, mm-hmm. that father would have been, you know, the person he played there would have been a much closer, you know, of course, back then he would have been like eight years old. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's kind of what I'm going for for a Jack Torrance before he starts drinking. And yes. Possessed. You know, and I honestly can't wait for us to talk about Dr. Sleep to you, right? Because... It, for for reasons like that, you know, and and when we get to that episode, we'll talk about how Mike Flanagan really like put his toe on the line between King and, and Kubrick, right? And so mm-hmm. it's a whole discussion for that for sure. And I think that Henry Thomas in that movie is um a, a good example of that. 
yeah, an impossible task, but we'll we'll get to that task and and how he did on that next week. Well, we have to digress and talk about the lovely. Hi, I'm Shelley Duvall. <laughs> I used to watch that show when I was a kid. Who's from Fort Worth, by the way? I just discovered like this week. <laughs> yeah, and it's and you know it's kind of sad what happened with her in this movie because she famously had the worst time in this movie and we'll get a little bit into that later and of course it's sad what what's kind of become of her she is with still with us along with jack nicholson but um i think we saw her on a dr phil episode last and she was obviously suffering from heavy mental illness and refused uh any treatment that dr phil's show was going to offer her but there was a lot of complaints around that episode that Dr. Phil had exploited her mental illness because she's a celebrity and put her on the screen when she should not have been. And so there was a lot of fallback because of that, but unfortunately she's not doing great. Um, you know, but, and she didn't do great during this movie and, uh, and we'll, uh, we'll let you know a little bit later when we get into the making of stuff. I mean, but Shelley Duvall also had a pretty good career by the time, um, the shining was being made. Right. Yeah. I think that she's probably most well known for the shining, but, um, like she had been in a couple Woody Allen movies, Annie Hall for sure. Right. And, um, I mean, so she, she was working and she went to, she had a good career after the shining too. One of my favorite movie musicals of all time is Popeye. Have you seen that? No. With Robin Williams and Shelley Duvall, I guess. No. <laughs> as I mean, olive no <laughs> yeah she's olive oil yeah i mean like i just have so many fond memories of watching this movie and watching Chili Duvall and like fairytale theater right but um I, I don't know i mean i i think that she is unfairly shit on for her performance in this movie is she i, I thought she was just kind of forgotten you know and that was kind of her legacy i don't know i think that people they they really point to like the the sniveliness of this character and like how she's like sort of spineless and and you know well i i've seen that from stephen king certainly when he yeah. was talking about kubrick's version of her which was much more like independent you know and different character happy character not this very emotionally fragile second guessing wallflower person you know <laughs> it's very yeah. meek no, I mean, I, I, I get it, you know, and, and oftentimes I've seen The Shining several times in my life, right? I mean, it's like I oftentimes revisit this movie um, and I sort of go back and forth on how I feel about Shelley Duvall. Usually it coincides with whether or not I've reread the book recently or something, but mm -hmm. I think that there are some scenes in this movie that you could really point to her being a good actress. And I think that she sort of commands the camera in those moments. And I think oh, yeah. it's the moments where she's not having to act against Jack Nicholson, you know? So, well, I almost disagree with that because I love the scenes that basically killed her in real life, but the scenes where, you know, Jack's, um, you know, breaking into the room, you know, into the bathroom and the scene where she's on the staircase trying to like bat him away, you know, those scenes of panic, she was really good at, um, you know, I really liked her performance in those. I thought they were real, you know, it's some of the dialogue scenes that I thought she was a little, a little flat, you know, but honestly, overall, I would say her performance was great. Yeah. I mean, so like I, I would, there's a scene at the beginning where she's talking to the doctor in her living room, right? And she's she's very nervous because she's she's a mom who you know whose whose son is having this sort of like attack, right? And she's having to divulge this really personal information to that doctor at that moment, mm -hmm. and just the way that Shelley Duvall 
you know, portrays that smoking that cigarette sort of shaking and is not sure like what she should say or how much she should divulge. Like, I just really like those scenes I think are good. It's a nice quiet. Oh yeah. That was a really good scene. She, she was having to tell that news through a smile, trying to make it seem normal. And you could tell, you know, the wheels were turning in her mind or in her character's mind. And that's what she's showing. She's showing that she's acting in front of and behind her eyes. And uh, it was, it was very well done. Yeah, I agree. And then finally we get to, you know, as far as like the main family here, we get to Danny Lloyd as Danny Torrance. And I thought he was phenomenal as, you know, as far as child actors go, I thought he did amazing, especially, you know, uh, acting as Tony, you know, he created that voice himself. It was his idea to use his finger to talk. It was that really? idea. Yeah. Wow. And so, um, you know, I, I just thought it was like of all the performances in this movie, maybe the most underrated is actually the child's performance. And I mean, I've said it before, right. That I, I used to, and I'm starting to change my mind just like Roger Ebert does. Um, you know, when a, a child gives a good performance, I often give credit to the director really. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, I get surprised all the time that these, these kids really just like, understand their role and bring something to it. And I think that he really does, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that again, you know, when we get to the differences between the novel and the movie, you know, it, it could have gone another way, but I think for what, what Kubrick wrote and what he had in mind, I think that Danny Lloyd really brought it all for that. And honestly, it's, it's very difficult to really judge a performance knowing the, the making of, of this film, because you know, that, you know, Kubrick's involved and he's very meticulous. And so any one of these scenes could have been shot 100 times or more. Mm. Right. So there were records broken for amount of shots that were filmed in this, in this movie, amount of retakes. So really? Oh yeah. Oh shit. Yeah. We'll definitely get to that later. And uh, the only other one I want to really wanted to talk on a little bit was of course, Scatman Crothers is Dick Halloran. I thought he did a great job. You know, he's my favorite character from the film probably. I completely agree with you. There is just something about the way that Scatman Crothers speaks, right? I mean, his cadence in this movie that is so incredibly relaxing to me. Like when I'm watching it, like I immediately like that character, like right away. And she's just so incredibly warm and caring. Storyteller. Deep down. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't know, maybe something about the way he says the word toast, right? Right. And I, I couldn't even pinpoint it, but I mean, I, I like him so much from the get go mm-hmm. and he makes me feel comfortable in a movie that, you know, through much, most of it, I don't feel that comfortable watching. Yeah. So. And you're not going to believe who almost uh, took his place. Oh, is that a fun fact? Might be. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, Scatman Crothers deserved that Saturn award. I think he probably deserved a lot more praise than what he got, you know, when this movie was released. And we can probably chalk that up to, you know, initial reviews or reception of the movie. But I think as time has gone by, like a lot of people really like his portrayal of that character and really grab onto it. And that makes me very happy. I do want to call out, I mean, there was a lot of other good performance in this, but, you know, Joe Joe Turkle as Lloyd the bartender, but really especially Philip Stone as Delbert Grady. That bathroom scene is just stellar, not only because of Jack Nicholson, but really because of, you know, uh, Philip Stone's performance as as Grady. 
you know, of how he yeah. had to correct his family. <laughs> correct. He, uh, the way they play off each other, right? Like, mm. really is sort of a masterclass in acting, right? As like, you know, understanding your scene partner and like where they're going to go and what you're going to say and like blocking and stuff like that. And I mean, it also helps that like visually that scene is incredibly stunning, you know? The so, red bathroom. Well, it's just one of my favorite dialogue scenes, I think, in all of cinema. Yeah. I mean, and it goes from just like, you know, what the fuck is going on to incredibly creepy and a matter of like sentences. And I mean, it is just like very well done. I Yeah, he goes from like an average McPlain rap looking waiter to just like the creepiest, most ominous, you know, you know, authoritative character just within seconds. That's right. And it's such talent to be able to do that. And they shot it so well. Of course, it's Kubrick. So yeah, he knows how to shoot. But damn. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I think that any time that Philip Stone is on screen, right, and in the two moments that he is for the most part, so in that bathroom and outside the pantry door, I think that he is just commanding. And he really is just like fucking head ghost at that point. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. it's good. Very, very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, should we go through the, the acts of which there are? 11 <laughs> if the title cards are to be believed at least i have to say and i've already told you this off mic was i was watching the shining and i know your penchant for naming acts whenever we go through the movie right and i was like oh my god i hope he just lists them all as the title card so they've done it for me <laughs> half the work is done and hilarious yeah. <laughs> with the exception of the opening mm. But of course, we get that amazing helicopter shot of Jack driving up to the Overlook for that interview. Yes. Oh my and it's God. so smooth. Like almost nothing had really been that smooth in a helicopter shot like that before. It was so smooth looking that they reused it for Dr. Sleep and just made it nighttime. And it still just looks excellent. Yeah, I think the opening of this movie is really phenomenal, right? I think mm-hmm. it, it really sets a tone visually sonically that a lot of movies just can't do or haven't done right i mean like from Mm -hmm. the from the minute we have a camera sort of like speeding over that like landscape with that music playing in the background you know exactly what kind of movie you're in for and Mm -hmm. it's incredibly well done well you could have easily had that shot but put like the sound of music soundtrack behind it and it It would have been happy yeah You know, but it's up to that music and to that slow sweeping camera that it just like dictates the the mood. And it's 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 really just an excellent shot and and an introduction to a bevy of excellent shots throughout this film. That's right. I have to completely agree. And I know we'll probably dissect a lot of those along the way. Um, So second act quickly approaching is called The Interview. (laughs) Wait, was that a title card? I can't remember. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All of these are title cards. Yeah. The interview. It's a black screen with like all these title cards are black screen with just this titling all uppercase, just the interview. In which we have the interview. (laughs) Two interviews, (laughs) really. You know, but the first one being of uh Jack Torrance with Stuart Ullman, and he's interviewing for the position of winter caretaker. And we, we really get a lot of information about the hotel delivered very quickly through these like lines of dialogue. Things were going on and Jack Nicholson's character, Jack Torrance, was getting a lot of information like very quickly from this man. Well, they both passed that interview, her with the doctor and him with him when they with the manager when they shouldn't have. 
Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Social services should have been called for both cases. That's right. So, I mean, like, ultimately, like we already said, like, I wouldn't have hired Jack Nicholson in this particular moment because every time he gives some like bad news, he's like, well, that's fascinating. And, you know, so we get through all that. And, and like, there's even somebody else in the room during this interview, that other character um, who is sort of like an assistant manager to the hotel and the camera cuts to him oftentimes before the bad news is being delivered. Right. And mm-hmm. he's like glancing over at Jack and he's like sort of like studying his response. Right. There should have been two people who have been like, nope. <laughs> so he was probably the the source of my most of my in- unintentioned laughter <laughs> during the first half of this movie, because he also says when they when the whole family arrives later, the the manager says, could you arrange to get their luggage up to their room? And he says, fine. <laughs> it's like, damn. He has a strong like problem with authority. Maybe he's, he's just, just like, one day I'll be manager and I will not make these gross choices. <laughs> For real. Oh, Lord. Well, the doctor's there because uh, Danny had those visions, right? Um, Tony kind of showed Danny, Tony, of course, his psychic power, showed Danny some visions over the Overlook, right? As kind of like a, an ominous, you know, canary in the coal mine type of situation right yeah so we see like the blood pouring out of the elevators for the first time right at this moment and we get to see um like danny's shocked face which we see throughout the movie right he's always shocked about what he's seeing and we sort of realize like the extent of what his powers might be and what it can do to him physically right because he's sort of like blacked out and his mom called a doctor Mm -hmm. and you know the doctor says he's fine it's like this is what children do and they have their own uncomfortable interview session where you know wendy has to sort of spill the tea about her marriage and while they're in colorado for in the first place right yeah and then of course the doctor hears that they're going to spend the next you know six months alone in a hotel and just stamps that passport that's right she's like well y'all have fun with that bye (laughs) (laughs) i'll make sure to put this check in the bank right now (laughs) yeah and then we cut to another title card in our third act called closing day how descriptive they get the hotel tour um you know and danny sees the twins for the first time all of this is in our synopsis obviously right. and, but we also get to meet dick halloran right and so there's that that moment um during the hotel tour where we sort of like first get the idea of what the hedge maze is right mm-hmm. um but we don't really understand like the like enormity of it but um you know we meet dick halloran in the kitchen where he's talking to wendy and we get the first you know telepathic conversation between he and Danny offers him some ice cream. That's right. And then they eat the ice cream. And then we also learn that the hotel is scary. It even scares Dick. So yeah, but he tells, he tells Danny that it's just pictures, mm-hmm. you know, that they can't hurt him. It's just showing him memories. But what he doesn't realize, you know, in Dr. Sleep later, we learned that Dick didn't realize how powerful Danny truly was and that he made them real based on, on how much, uh, psychic energy per se he was kind of allowing them to feed on well yeah i mean because i you know dick is sort of like thinking that he's you know doing one of those lies to children that everyone does right like there's nothing to be mm-hmm. afraid of it's just pictures in a book and then you know he's talking to a psychic kid and he's like well what about room 237 and dick's like no fuck you don't go in that room you know so yeah. well i think he later understands what's happening because I-, I believe dick is vacationing in florida right yeah He's and so from Colorado, 
Danny has sent a psychic shockwave of alarm later on in the film so far across the continental United States that Dick's like, oh shit, something wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let me get on the phone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so after he meets Dick and they have that telepathic conversation and we get, you know, we get the shining, right? We know why it's called that. It's a month later per title card. And uh <laughs> A month later. (laughs) A month later. A month has passed and everyone's gone. It's just the family at the hotel. And um, really, the the best part of this moment is when they are in the hedge maze for the first time, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, But we we see Jack is working. He's doing his whole tennis ball against the wall thing, you know, trying to get inspiration. Meanwhile, um, Danny and Wendy you know his mom are out going into the hedge maze and we get that amazing shot oh. of jack kind of wandering over to the model of the hedge maze inside the hotel looking down on it like he's god or watching and it zooms in and kind of transitions into the actual hedge maze from bird's eye view and it's just an amazing shot yeah i know i i oftentimes will like take notes whenever i'm watching a movie right just random thoughts that pop into my brain and that's one that i wrote i was just like oh my good googly moogly like that big overhead shot and then into the the model on the table is just fantastic yeah (laughs) like god i still kind of wonder how they did that you know because they couldn't have built that whole thing no i mean i i have no idea I mean, but it's it's impressive and it looks real as fuck. Seamless, yeah. So not the transition between the model and it is not seamless, but the the it's it's seamless to show like this gigantic hedge maze that they're in. They couldn't have possibly, yeah. Anyway, I digress, but it's just an amazing shot. And then of course that's it. Yeah, <laughs> that's it for that act, and it's Tuesday. That's the next title <laughs> card. Tuesday. <laughs> so ambiguous in its time, right? So I mean, a month later, like which Tuesday is it? But it's one of them. Yeah. So that's really when our story starts. It's like a month after they've been staying there. We we basically this whole thing before that has been the prologue essentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So Tuesday's a big day for the Torrance family though at the Overlook, right? Um so Wendy knows that storm is coming cuz she's watching it on TV. They do a lot of TV watching there. And um we get our first like major moment of um Danny riding his tricycle throughout the Overlook. Yeah. I love the shot as some of the most iconic film work you think of when you think of the shining is that, you know, steady cam shot of, of Danny riding his tricycle mm-hmm. or his trike, I guess, through the, the hallways of the hotel. Um, just iconic. And it's of course the first time he spots to uh, room two, three, seven, although it is locked at that point. That's right. And it's also Jack's first angry outburst toward Wendy. It's the, the hotel's kind of creeping its way into him. Yeah. Up until this point, I think that, you know, like Jack looks crazy right and you know we sort of have this like overwhelming sense of dread about him especially because you know wendy's already offered some information to the doctor and we know like what happened in their past but this is the first time that he really like snaps and like lets her have it right and she comes up and asks about his work and he's like well every time you interrupt me i have to start all over again he yells at her and rips that paper and we're just like okay (laughs) like you're a little insane yeah I, I, I looked over at Matt when we were watching this and I was like, if you did that to me, I would just be like, okay, well, you're getting your own food. I'm moving into a different wing of the hotel with my son. And when you're ready to be a human again, let me know. Otherwise, leave us the fuck alone. 
Yeah, I mean, but this is how people, you know, react to situations like that with spouses, right? I mean, obviously, like, she's a little gun shy, you know, because she's had to deal with things. And, you know, she 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 may feel a little helpless or whatever. But I mean, the whole time during that scene, like, I keep thinking to myself, I was just like, bitch. I was like, pick up that fucking ashtray and beat him over the head with it. Like, yeah, even Stephen King said, like, the way Kubrick modeled this role for her was, like, just like the most misogynistic yeah. <laughs> way to portray a woman, you know, but this is the the woman she is in this film, you know? And so that's just the way she, she reacts. She's afraid of him. I mean, and I, we will say that like, you know, battered woman syndrome is a thing, right? I mean, like it's, you know, it has its place in, in psychological, you know, evaluations or whatever. And she may have been experiencing some of that stuff, but yeah. Um, and you know, if Jack Nicholson was saying that to me, I don't know how I'd react. Maybe I would. Maybe I'd just be like, okay, I'll give you your sandwich <laughs> later. <laughs> Keep working. <laughs> I'll work in no play, right? Have some play. Where's your tennis ball, Jack? <laughs> <laughs> and then it's Thursday. Yeah, that's right. Just as soon as Tuesday began, it's suddenly Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All that happened on Thursday is that Jack is staring out a window <laughs> at Wendy and Danny playing in the snow, and we get this incredible shot of Jack going crazy. <laughs> I mean, and it's Saturday. <laughs> it's it's a good shot, though, right? I mean, because the white is sort of like reflecting onto his face a little bit, and he yeah. really looks fucking crazy, right? Oh, and his yeah. family's like frolicking, and I'm like, what a weird juxtaposition, right? Yeah, and that's it. I've actually I've watched The Shining so many times, and I've never noticed the like the closeness of those title cards Thursday and Saturday. Mm-hmm. And it's just that one shot of Jack staring out the window, essentially right. of them, you know, playing outside. And it's just that's it. And now it's Saturday. Yep, on Thursday. So we're just seeing this this rather quick descent after a, after it's like it's made its way into him after a month of staying there, and now it's just we're counting down the days. And Saturday is the day that Wendy realizes the phones are down. She she tries to start calling for help on the radio just to make sure you know that they know that they're there and things like that and uh danny rides his trike into twinstown <laughs> right twin hallway <laughs> yep um and it's the first time we get to hear the twins speak right because when they came into the game room they were silent they just stood there and they walked out hand in hand but now they're giving him a very scary invitation you know hopefully mm-hmm. one that he would want to turn down immediately come play with us forever and ever and ever and ever mm-hmm <laughs> and that's one of those standout quotes from the film. And it's also one of the standout shots as yet another steady cam shot of his trike through the hallways. But what has bothered me about that scene since I've seen this movie every single time is that there's a soundtrack bump in the music, right? The, the flare, the crescendo, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. And it's a full like second before the reveal of the twins. It's like, Dah! and then he turns the corner <laughs> and I'm like, God damn it. Like edit this. <laughs> it just like it makes you know that something's around that corner you're right i mean like james Wan would never do that today he knows how to place a fucking dolby shock scare right (laughs) yes there you go yeah but you know after he meets those twins on saturday then it's it's monday it's monday all of a sudden yeah It's like a diary entry of a movie, yeah. <laughs> Dear diary, Monday was weird. I had a little talk with Daddy on the bed, and I asked him a very serious question while he was looking at me crazily. I was trying to get my fire truck. You'd never hurt Mommy or me, would you? <laughs> Did he answer that question? I can't remember. I think he just no. probably looked at him like... No, he didn't answer. All he said was... I, he might have said, like, no passively, but he was much more concerned with who told you to ask that question. Was it was yeah. it your mother? Did your mother tell you that I'd hurt you or whatever? And so that kind of spells the his paranoia, just spills it over the edge. 
Yeah, of course. I mean, like he's already going down the drain at that particular moment. And I think that we will figure out how deep that drain is when it's Wednesday. <laughs> that's right. Uh, <laughs> and that's when Danny enters room 237. He rides by, or actually he's not riding. He's actually playing in the hallway and he sees that the door is open. He turns around and the door is open and he, he decides to, to, you know, check it out. And then we quickly cut to Jack's nightmare of him, you know, murdering his family. Of course, we don't see that. He just describes it to his wife stupidly right after he has it. <laughs> here's what here's what I love about um, fucking Wednesday. So, like, Jack is sleeping and having a nightmare at the table. Meanwhile, we have Wendy doing all the fucking work, right? Like, she's checking on the boiler. She's writing things down. Like, she's the only one being a fucking caretaker, right? And then mm-hmm. she goes to be the caretaker to her husband. And he's like, I just had the most horrible dream where I killed you. <laughs> I'm like, damn. Yep. God. And of course, uh, as he's telling her the nightmare, you know, uh, Danny walks in with the bruises about the the face and and neck, presumably, of course, from the the ghost bitch of room two three seven. And you know, of course, she doesn't know any better, so she accuses Jack of abusing. You know, especially after he just told her about that nightmare, right? And of course, he knows he didn't do anything, and that's just fuel to the fire. You know, he goes to the gold room and. Meets the friendly ghost, Lloyd, the bartender. He is uh, angrily storming the hallways, and he goes into the gold room, and we first meet Lloyd, who looks especially ghostly, I would say, mm-hmm. right? He yeah, looks creepy. Unlike any bartender I've ever met, but, yeah. um, but you know, Jack sort of gets his first taste of alcohol in a very long time. Something like, what, five or eight months or something like that is what they say at the yeah. beginning of the movie. And it's Which ghost is, alcohol because there is no alcohol. They take it all off the shelves and everything for insurance and blah, blah, blah. Right. But I mean, so like he's given some sort of like, you know, psychic alcohol. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a metaphor as to like, you know, to explain his badness, right? Or how the ghosts are taking a hold of him, right? So, but. The I drink mean, takes a drink. Yeah. And then the drink takes a man. <laughs> Well, while he's having that drink with Lloyd, the bartender, Wendy comes in hysterical and explains that Danny told her about the crazy woman in 237, right? This mm-hmm. is around the time, too, we get that shot of, you know, Danny's face as he's, you know, calling Dick Halloran oh, all the way in Florida, right? So calling yeah, for exactly. help in the only way mm-hmm. that he possibly can. Meanwhile, back at the hotel, Wendy goes to Jack and says, actually, you know, you know, it, it was this old, you know, this lady that attacked him, this crazy old, you know, presumably homeless lady or something that attacked Danny in this in this room. She's just holding up in there. She doesn't realize it's a ghost, obviously. And so Jack, you know, answers the call and enters room 237 and witnesses his own little experience with that lady, you know, who he essentially cheats on his wife with as far as like a kiss you know he makes that with her before realizing she's a hideous corpse and he doesn't even think twice about it like that young beautiful woman is getting out of the bathtub and the look on jack's face is like okay and you know when they're kissing like he he his hands are on her he does not think twice about kissing this woman right and then he gets that sort of like gross comeuppance and um you know has to back away in terror and that really is a really gross moment in this movie like i remember like watching this for the first time and being visibly like shaken watching that part i'm like it's really unnerving especially for i think it was maybe like 
11 or 12 when I saw Shining for the first time. So, Well, I would say that and his drink at the bar, that's when he is officially possessed, at least yeah. of this you know, ghostly alcoholic beverage, which is, I think, just symbolism for him actually being ingesting part of this house, you know? And that's a decision he makes is because Wendy asks him, did you see anything? And he says no, you know? That's right. He even like goes so far as to say that Danny was doing something he shouldn't have been doing. He stole a mm-hmm. key. He went into a room. He knows he's not supposed to go in there sort of thing. Like he's completely severed his ties with his family at this particular juncture. And this is also just halfway through the movie. The rest <laughs> of the movie takes place this same day. <laughs> Wednesday's the day. Yep. Mm-hmm. Lord. <laughs> Hump day. <laughs> Fuck me. And so, of course, Wendy says, we got to get out. You know, like, if you didn't see anything, whatever, you know, he's hurt. The situation's not tenable. Let's go. And so Jack says, you're going to ruin this job for me. I'm just going to be, you know, some, you know, low end job. Yeah. He's like, "Um, I'm sure it's going to be great for me back in Boulder where I can wash cars. Right. You know? Yeah. And I mean, like, he's calling into question, like, his manhood and his ability to, like, provide for a family that he clearly doesn't want. You know, I mean, there's there's so much happening in just this one argument that they that they share, right? Yeah, which leads him to storm off again back to the gold room. You know, the only supply of, you know, psychic alcohol that he has, and that's when he meets Grady, the yep. waiter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they have that whole conversation in the bathroom that we were talking about earlier in this episode. And basically, Grady says, "Your son is attempting to bring an outside party into this situation." Bring. <laughs> Love his bold R's. It's great. Correct. So I corrected them. You should correct your family too. <laughs> I just like, I mean, because the whole scene starts out so sort of playful, right? Where he was like, oh, you know, I've made a mess. And he's like, no, it's fine. He's like, oh, no, it's avocado and it has a tendency to stain. And that joke continues in the bathroom. And he was like, oh, I'll finish my bourbon and avocado or whatever. And so, like, but yeah, this, this scene, like we talked about earlier, really takes a sharp turn and changes the direction of the movie entirely. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just push. so incredibly well done. I just, I love it. Just love the fuck out of it. Yep. The house has possessed him and now it's giving him orders. That's correct. Correct. And so I think really this next one is Thursday. To be just to be fair, I think the next is Thursday, 8 a.m., right? So Dick Halloran flies back to Colorado. This is also when Wendy in the morning ventures out of her room with a bat, not sure what's going on, not sure if there's a crazy lady or if her husband's crazy, mm-hmm. and finds his work. You know, essentially that there's hundreds and hundreds of pages that he's typed out saying, All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And we get the iconic scene, you know, steady cam up the stairs scene of him coming after her and saying he's going to bash her brain right the fuck in. Yep. I'm not going to hurt you. You didn't let me finish. I said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. Bash them right the fuck in. <laughs> yeah. And um, but instead she bashes his brains in and he falls down the stairs. <laughs> shouldn't say things it's like prophetic last words jack shut the fuck up Mm -hmm. um but he's unconscious and she is dragging him to the kitchen to lock him in the pantry and he comes to just before right after she locks the door and tells him that they have no escape he has done fucked up everything in that hotel and they have no escape yeah he has sabotaged the radio and he has sabotaged the snowcat that would allow them to exit the premises. 
That's right. And like, he doesn't just tell her, he tells her to go look at it. He's like, go check out the snow cat, you know, and she goes mm-hmm. and looks and it's, you know, shit's been pulled out of it and she doesn't know how to fix it. Right. So yeah, it looks like he straight up cut the cables versus at least with the radio, he like calmly takes up pieces of it. <laughs> yeah. He takes up those little Lego pieces and he's like, there, I did it. <laughs> it's 4 p.m. at this point, right? And it's time for Wendy to have a hysterical nap. She said yes. too much of a day. This is right. our final title card, 4 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> and this is when Grady, uh, the ghostly voice, lets Jack out of his prison. In the That's right. But he has to promise before he does. Like, we'll let you out, but you have got to... Correct your family. Meanwhile, while that's happening, uh, you know, we get the iconic scene with uh, Danny still in his trance as Tony saying red rum over and over, finally writing it on the door with lipstick, which of course wakes Wendy up and she sees in the mirror that it is murder. That's right. I oftentimes think about that lipstick that Danny picks up off that table, right? Because it's pretty clear to me that Wendy has not been wearing lipstick this entire time. I don't know why it's so readily available for Danny to write things on, but I mean, it's the movies, so it's okay. Yeah, I didn't notice that. I didn't think about it. But yeah, so she sees murder in the in the door and in the mirror, right? So it's murder. Red Rum the entire time has been a warning and mm-hmm. right as she realizes this, there's an axe through the door. Yeah, and of course she has a knife because thanks to Danny. And um, you know, they hide in the bathroom. Uh, she throws danny out the window <laughs> it slides down the snowbank that actually it seems kind of funny he's like sliding down that snow hill yeah. right <laughs> like that is so convenient that that snow hill is right under that window <laughs> and uh yeah and we get that here's johnny moment where he's axing to get in <laughs> <laughs> oh my god okay what does he say at the first door, though? He's having to chop through many doors. And he's like, honey, I'm home or something. And yeah. then he's like, no, that didn't work. Here's Johnny. That's yeah. better. <laughs> yeah. I didn't sound crazy enough the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, she slices his hand and he sort of backs up and then he hears the snowcat coming. So he has to go meet Dick down in the lobby of the hotel. Yeah. And, and Dick arrives and gets immediately wasted by Jack. Right. And that yeah. has always pissed me off. Always, always, always pissed me off about this film. I hate it when there are characters that I like that have the worst deaths. I'm like, give them a little credit or a little something. We can't just have it like immediately be over for them. He's like turning the corner and shouting out names. And all of a sudden it's an ax to the heart. And you're like, well, that's it. Deal done. You know? Yeah. Oh, and it's awful. Not even a scene. He just dies. And it's, I know it's supposed to be a shock, but it's like a tightrope with the direction here, right? Because all through the movie sprinkled in is Dick getting messages, traveling back, you know, taking like planes, trains and automobiles to get back here. And he walks Mm -hmm. through the front doors and he's just axed in the chest. And I'm just like, fuck you. Yep. Like he was only good enough to provide them with transportation out, you know? And I'm like, that is not, it's not a good way to, to say goodbye to that character in, in any form or fashion it just, it's and this is night. one of the top examples of that people give sometimes of you know black people in horror movies that's right i mean like i that there was no way that he was going to survive anyway you have to kill off all the like you know you know people of color characters and he dies in such an unmemorable horrible fashion and it's just yeah. an afterthought after that you know in the book he actually survives right Yes, he does. So he's like, he's he didn't one of the, have to, he wasn't supposed to die anyway. <laughs> one of the biggest, like, 
you know, glowing differences between the book and the movie. And I mean, things happen to him when he gets there. Right. Right. So, I mean, we can talk about this for a minute before we get into like the actual differences between the book, but like the hedge animals actually attack, attack Dick Halloran too, when he gets there Mm -hmm. and then he does get injured by Jack, but um, you know, he survives. Right. And they, they sort of like get to leave together, which is a much better ending for that. As the hotel burns down. (laughs) Yeah. So, but, um, after, after he, you know, kills Dick and he's chasing Danny throughout the hotel and then eventually outside, Wendy is like taking her little ghost tour, her haunted hotel tour of the <laughs> Overlook. <laughs> she sees the, yeah, the, she sees the ghost room, I guess, with all the skeletons. I don't know what that's about. They haven't seen yeah. skeletons before and they're just sitting there doing nothing. And she sees the blood in the elevator and she sees nice party, isn't it? Or whatever <laughs> guy. And then she also sees the obvious gay couple, but they're ones in like puppy play get up and giving another, like a businessman, a blowjob. It's like, was that in the book? Like, where did this come from? No, I don't. That's not in it's the just book. meant to shock audiences I, in 1980 or like, I don't, I mean, I don't know why he put that in there. It's shocking. You know, I mean, like, as I will say, like there, there are a couple moments in this movie that really get me as far as like terror goes. But every single time, even to this day in my 41th year, when that dog like leans up and looks at her and then the laying down man like sort of like leans up too, I am like terrified every single fucking time. To me, it just kind of raises my eyebrow. You know, like oh. I, I was like, "What?" <laughs> it's so random. Everything else is so horrific, and that is just, I guess, just meant to shock audiences. You know, like homophobic audiences or audiences that aren't used to seeing that. And you know, to me, it's just like that's really outdated. I mean, the puppy costume's a weird touch. It just makes me like go, "Huh?" <laughs> yeah, it's huh? it's not like the act itself. Like that was never shocking to me, even when I was younger. I mean, like I pretty much knew I was gay from a young age. But I mean, like the costume itself to me is like yeah. truly visually frightening. Like it just, it just scares me. Yeah. And it just, it makes me wonder like how they died or what their story was. And I'm sure maybe that's going to be a part, you know, of um, the hotel series. Oh God, I hope so. You know, it just reminds me a lot of the American Horror Story mm-hmm. um, and that show and how they, they told all the stories of people. And obviously that's kind of based on the Overlook and stuff like that. Right. American. Horror oh yeah. Story. There's, there's so much shining in that series yeah. that's for sure. Of course, but you know, so I don't know. It'll be it'll be interesting to see, but I don't know. I just thought oh, it was just such a weird detail, and they were noticeably absent as ghosts in Doctor Sleep. Yeah, I think that's an obvious choice by Flanagan too. You know, so but yeah, thank I you. mean, to me, like I just it's one of those moments that I always remember from The Shining. You know, mm-hmm. but post that, so Wendy's running around the house seeing all her ghosts, and meanwhile, Danny has led Jack out to the hedge maze, and he's being very clever and covering his tracks in the snow. That's right, and so Jack can't seem to get his bearings after this, right? Um, after he's pulled that little trick, and you know, this is not the last time that Danny will use the hedge maze, you know, in oh. his favor, which is great mm-hmm. uh, narratively, as far as like Doctor Sleep is concerned, but. Yet again, we digress on that subject. And um, Danny makes it out and reconvenes with his mother and they escape on the snowcat that Dick brought, had brought up, you know, and they just kind of let everything lie as is. And meanwhile, it cuts to, you know, Jack having frozen to death, um, which leads me to one question I had. I See, I take everything, you know, as is in the movie and I have no questions typically except for those weird ghosts. But why didn't the ghosts help him out of the hedge maze? Well, for me, I think... 
throughout the movie, we never see any ghostly activity outside of the hotel, right? I mean, it the happens movie, in yeah. the book, but in the movie, the ghosts are sort of confined to the building itself. So maybe they just couldn't get to the hedgemaze to help him. Like he had already abandoned whatever protection they offered him and that was it. Or uh, you could also wonder if when Wendy and Danny were obviously going to escape that they had no use for Jack other than to just consume him completely and have yeah. him be a permanent guest. One of us, one of us. That's Google gobble. I mean, yeah, I mean, and, and ultimately too, I think they had to find a way to end the movie. Right. And, and, and they had spent so much time with the hedge maze. It became such a, like a particular cornerstone of this movie that it made sense for someone to die in it. Right. They, they really like opened that up and had to close it. I feel. Well, I, I do think there's a story about what was supposed to be the ending of this film. And I believe it was supposed to be a hospital where they were and saying that they didn't find Jack's body. And then the last thing was the photo. But I think that reel was lost or was destroyed or thrown out. Uh, not by Kubrick, but by someone else that did, didn't like it or didn't want it or by accident. I'm not sure. Um, I don't think I, I like that ending. That. I mean, I prefer him being frozen in the hedge maze. Yeah. Like and, a tangible end. You know, it just cuts to that. And then we get the slow kind of pan into that photo, you know, mm-hmm. showing that, you know, this is definitely supernatural and that the house has not only consumed him, but it has made it a part of its like, you know, historical tapestry. You know what I mean? That's right. And I have a question about that photo and I hope to God it's not one of your fun facts. This has always bothered me. So every time I've seen the movie, the photo says July 4th ball, 1921. But every time I see a picture of on the internet, it says New Year's Eve, 1921. Is that because they changed that for like a European audience or something? Because it's an American holiday? That may be the case. That's not one of my fun facts, but it tracks because they reshot Every single scene where she was looking at Jack's papers, she had to redo that every single time because they wanted a very specific line for each culture and language. Oh, wow. Yeah. God. And they did that on the day. They didn't do that separately. She had to do it all. Poor woman. Yes. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's always bothered me because every time, I mean, even on New Year's Eve this year, a friend sent me um, a picture. It said Happy New Year's or whatever, and it said New Year's Eve Ball, nineteen twenty one. And I was like, "That's not what it is in the movie." Yeah, it's <laughs> just like, ugh, just bothers yeah. the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. Now that detail does tie into some conspiracy theories about the film, but we'll talk about those later as well. Okay, good. I'm ready to talk about that too. This has come up a couple times so far, but do you know any more major differences from the book? Yeah. So the differences between the novel, The Shining, and the movie are vast. Right. Um, I've read The Shining three times. Once when I was in middle school, once like toward the end of my high school career, and then once as an adult where I was working very quiet and lonely shifts at a hotel by myself. Nice. <laughs> so I'm, uh, yeah, I, I like this book quite a bit. And um, it's, it's very, very different. I think most of the differences lie in like character actions and motivations for the yeah. most part, right? We sort of hinted at this already. But in the, in the novel, um, Jack Torrance really has a complete arc, right? Like he starts off as somebody who's very earnestly trying to be a better father and better husband yep. based on some past, you know, grievances. And yes, he is a recovering alcoholic. And yes, he did, you know, abuse Danny. And he's trying to, you know, combat that and be a different person. And in the movie, we he's not. He's sort of crazy from the get-go, like we said. Yeah, right? like in the in the miniseries, which is much more close to the book, you get a sense that this was a moment of weakness and that he is very painfully 
aware of that and sorry about it versus in the in the book it seems like or sorry in this in this film kubrick's version this guy is kind of a lost cause in a way like he's rationalizing all of it anyway that's right yeah he's just like he's sort of resigned to the fact i I think that from jack nicholson's performance i think we get a better idea of somebody who's a recent recovering alcoholic as in the book like it's been some time you know yeah he seems Um, like a he's a very petulant about the whole thing and too early in the in the movie in my opinion for the character i agree you know have you read the book no I highly recommend it. I mean, like it's, it's, it's really good. And moving on from Jack, I mean like the character of Wendy in the novel is completely different, like night and day. I mean, she's a very like, um, self-empowered woman. And, you know, we sort of get the idea that she's staying with her husband because she has some past family issues or whatever, you know, but she was also like a cheerleader. Yeah. Like she was, she was like a cheerleader, but in in high school, she's kind of vivacious and extroverted compared to this one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And even the character of Danny is different in the book, right? He's he's not very secretive about his powers. He doesn't talk about it all the time because he doesn't want to upset his parents. But, I mean, in the book, we sort of get the idea that, like, Danny is very intelligent for his age and um, is fully aware of his family dynamic, where in the movie, he's sort of portrayed as, like, a very quiet, introverted kind of kid who doesn't really understand what's going on in his own brain, right? But that's just the characters. I mean, like, the plot of the novel is completely different. Um, like spoiler alert, you know, we've already talked about like topiary animals, like hedge animals. Right. And that's a huge part in the book. They come to life and sort of attack Danny and Dick. And that's, you know, severely missing from this movie, but also the ending is different. Um, at the end of the book, uh, the overlook is destroyed, right? There's yes. a whole like sequence where we learn that the, the, the boiler is faulty and as Jack's slowly, like, you know, becoming more and more possessed by the hotel, you know, he forgets about that. And there's a moment where he sort of comes to and he lets Danny and Dick and his wife, you know, escape the hotel and he dies along with it. Right. So, I mean, and also Dick lives in the book, which you've already talked about, which I think is a much better ending for that particular character. But yeah, it's it's so incredibly different from the movie. And I think like when I've watched the movie in the past, like it's, it's some, I I go back and forth. I have this love hate relationship with the shining and most of my hate comes from the fact that it's so different from the book. Right. But Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes you just have to let that sort of thing go because I have to say that some of the most iconic moments in this movie are not in the book at all. There are no elevators like pouring blood. There are no twin girls in hallways. Right. And like, there's things that we get, there's no hedge maze. There are things that Kubrick gives us in this movie that are not in the Stephen King novel that I think add so much to the story and make it a fun watch. You really have to just like say, you know, you can appreciate both and move on from it. Yeah. But uh, with that being said, we've also talked about how Stephen King reacted to the movie, and it's pretty famous that he does not appreciate Kubrick's like vision of it, right? Um, so I found a couple quotes on IndieWire.com, if okay. you will allow me to, to read some of those to you. Please do. So he has said of Wendy that it is one of the most misogynistic characters ever put on film. Yep. And yeah, he described the director's film as being very cold, right, as opposed to his being a little warm- He said, I think The Shining is a beautiful film, and it looks terrific, and I've said before, I'm a big 
it's like a big, beautiful Cadillac with no engine inside. In that sense, when it opened, a lot of the reviews weren't very favorable, and I was one of those reviewers. I kept my mouth shut at the time, but I didn't care much for it. He says, I feel the same because the character of Jack Torrance has no arc in that movie. Absolutely no arc at all. When we first see Jack Nicholson, he's in the office of Mr. Ullman, the manager of the hotel, and you know then he's crazy as a shithouse rat, (laughs) and all he does is get crazier. In the book, he's a guy who's struggling with his sanity, and he finally loses it. To me, that's a tragedy. In the movie, there's no tragedy because there's no real change. The other real difference is at the end of my book, the hotel blows up. In the end of Kubrick's movie, the hotel freezes. That's a difference. But I met Kubrick, and there's no question that he's a terrifically smart guy. He's made some of the movies that mean a lot to me. Dr. Strangelove for one, Paths of Glory for another. I think he did some terrific things, but boy, he was a really insular man. In the sense that when you meet him and when you talk to him, he was able to interact in a perfectly normal way, but you never felt like he was all the way there. He was inside of himself. Mm-hmm. He also goes on to cite Graveyard Shift and Children of the Corn as two other movies that didn't quite work. But, you know, I think that over the years, and this was 1980, right, when he this movie was made, and there have been so many movies, you know, adapted from Stephen King's work. I think he sort of softened over it. And at this point, he's like, you know, just try to hold true to what my book is and I'll, I'll like it, you mm-hmm. know. But he really doesn't like The Shining at all. Yeah, and I think it's maybe it takes some time for people to really kind of unpack a lot of like the analogy or symbolism or meaning of Stephen King's work, because it's not just a straightforward forward horror film or horror book, right? Like this whole thing is kind of an analogy to his own fear about becoming an alcoholic and hurting his family. Right. And so this is kind of his own story about that fear and how that the fear of becoming something else, something you don't want to become and hurting those around you, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what Kubrick kind of missed a little bit of, I think the, the warmth of that fear. Yeah. And where that comes from. And it had a heart. And I do believe there is a warmth to Dr. Sleep where there's a very, there's a coldness to the shining. I don't think that makes it a bad movie by any sense. I think it's a, an iconic film, you know, but I, I do agree with a lot of the points here, just not maybe with, with the same veracity. Yeah, I mean, and you know, we're we're not a horror novel podcast, we're a horror movie podcast, right? So we're going to talk about The Shining as the movie that it is, but I think in this one particular instance, it's pretty good to talk about the differences between the two. Yeah. And I mean, I think that um Stephen King gets ideas from God knows where, but when he writes a book that you think is very personal to his life, I think he holds it very dear, very close to the chest or whatever, and he doesn't want to see those themes go, and I think this is just one instance where he thought that someone got it wrong and he latched onto it so much that he had to create his own miniseries, right? And I think that we can all agree that the miniseries in comparison to this is not as good. No, not cinematic at all, really, comparatively. But with that being said, why don't we get back to talking about The Shining, the movie, right? So yeah, let's talk a little bit about the making of The Shining. And of course, uh, Kubrick had just done Barry Lyndon, which was uh, received as a beautiful but boring and slow, which is, of course, something that he's gotten a lot in his career, I think. But he wanted to make more commercially viable film, so he tried, decided to try his hand at horror. And there's actually a little anecdote here about him just collecting huge piles of horror books and just reading the first few pages of them and throwing them at the wall when he decided he wouldn't, didn't want to do it. And so his secretary would just hear thumps against the wall. And then... <laughs> 
sooner or later, after a few days or however long, uh, she didn't hear a thump anymore. And she walked in and he had, he had been reading The Shining for a while. And so that's how he ended up reading it or wanting to, to make the film. That's a really interesting story. I like that. I mean, and I have to agree, like I've seen Barry Lyndon one time. It's a movie I'll never watch again. Right. It's, it is beautiful, but it's very slow and incredibly boring. <laughs> so I think, I mean, I, I'm not the biggest fan of Kubrick and I'll have to admit, but that movie, especially I think is by far like a really good achievement directorially, but it's not, not a fun movie watch. You know, I've only watched three of his films. I think I've only watched Clockwork Orange and I've only watched The Shining and I've only watched 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Kubrick gets a little um, self-indulgent in the past. I would have said masturbatory with his editing and pacing, you know, and I think it's a problem in a lot of his films, but you, you just can't beat, you know, some of his photography you know, his eye, you know? Um, so that's, that's where I sit on that. Outside of the shining, which you mentioned in the ones that you've seen, like, um, a clockwork orange and 2001 are some of my least favorite Kubrick movies outside of Barry Lyndon. Um, I think that eyes wet shut is a fantastic movie. I, yeah. I definitely need to see it. And I, I just think that like the, the performances that he elicits from Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman are very good. And I mean, like that's like horror adjacency at its finest and it shouldn't be right. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that Dr. Strangelove is incredible. Like it's a really good movie. I think that Kubrick makes great movies. Right. And I think that he's remembered for like their cinematic qualities. As we've talked about before on the podcast, like I, I really like things that are more character driven. Right. And um like he is missing that a lot in some of his films. Yeah. Speaking about the theme of the film, Kubrick said, there's something inherently wrong with the human personality. There's an evil side to it. One of the things that horror stories can do is to show us the archetypes of the unconscious. We can see the dark side without having to confront it directly. That is such a good quote for horror in general. Yeah, I, I, I so completely much. agree with that. I think that uh, this is one of those examples of a director who has never made a movie that's you know considered to be horrific. Even though I think you know a lot of his movies sort of like tiptoe around it, right? Two thousand and one for sure, A Clockwork Orange most definitely, right? But he's really like coming to horror from this really cerebral sense, right? Um, and he's talking about personality and talking about character, and I, I can see him trying to sort of like do that in the shining right Mm -hmm. i just um i think that maybe if he would have held on to the arc of jack torrance like stephen king had mentioned in quotes you know it would have changed the movie drastically and he would have been able to accomplish something in that quote that he had said maybe i'm reading way too much into it i don't know I, i just think that he got it and he he knew why he wanted to make a horror movie and he had dedicated himself to the idea of it and he actually screened uh the exorcist and Eraserhead. And I think one more that I'm forgetting for his cast and crew to get the tone right before they started filming, you know, so he was a fan of horror. And I think that quote is, is um, great just to describe horror and why it's important. Yeah. And I, I completely, it could always be like a mission statement for any sort of horror podcast, right? To sort of like delve into the reasons why horror is scary and, and being able to confront it. Like he said, I, it, it is a very good quote. I like it a lot. Yeah. 
So obviously we know that Kubrick is famous for being meticulous and doing many, 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 many shots of the same scene over and over and over. Some scenes, some little dialogue scenes taking up to a week to film, right? And so principal photography took over a year to complete this film. Good Lord. <laughs> due to his nature. Yeah. And what did we say the budget was for this movie? Something like $9 million. I mean, I know that's like 1980 money, but yeah, I, don't... I mean, how do you have the kind of money to like have your principal photography last that long? That's crazy. I don't know. But due to Shelley Duvall's experience in the film, she became so stressed out that she became ill for months and that her hair started to fall out. Like he had standing rules uh, to not compliment her on her performance, to not be overly nice to her and stuff like that. And this is a shoot that lasted over a year where she had to spend days just crying for 12 hours straight or screaming for 12 hours straight or doing the same thing over and over, never once getting any kind of feedback to how she was doing, but says do it again, you know? And so she was just put upon <laughs> for this, but um, in fact, she had to do one scene 127 times. And that was the, the Wendy's uh, viewpoint of her on the staircase, right? Where she's waving the bat and everything, just climbing up that staircase 127 times doing that whole thing. Oh my God. Yeah. And most sites will actually tell you that this is the scene that got them into the Guinness book world of records for most retakes. And it wasn't another scene was, and that'll be in my fun facts. <laughs> what from this movie? Yeah. I can see that too. I mean, like the look on her face when she's backing up those stairs and waving that bat, she is just almost given up. Right. And that, so it reads to her character in the movie, but it also, I guess now that you've said this sort of like reads to her emotional state on set. I mean, how do you feel about directors doing things like this to elicit that kind of response, right? Do you think that he was doing it to, to get that response from her? Or he just wanted it to look as good as it possibly could. There's a lot going on here and yes to all of that. Probably. I mean, there's stories here that who knows if they're true or not little anecdotes you know like jack nicholson was only allowed to eat cheese sandwiches for weeks when he his character was supposed to devolve because he hated cheese (laughs) just random shit like that you know like craft services was only allowed to give him cheese sandwiches you know it's like (laughs) i'm sure that sounds like heaven to me but i would have loved a cheese sandwich if she could just get some goddamn like compliments for her work (laughs) <laughs> i can just imagine like some like gaff person be like oh your hair looks pretty today and he's like get off my set <laughs> how dare you compliment shilly Duvall? <laughs> yeah so God. i i also want to talk a little bit about the technical aspect because the shining was one of the first f- six films to use the newly developed city cam in fact, the inventor of the Steadicam, garrett brown was heavily involved in the production and operated the camera himself for the movie based on Kubrick's intended use of it. He was given a tour of the set when he was showing them the Steadicam, and he was so impressed, and uh, based on talking with Kubrick, he decided he wanted to do it himself because it wasn't just going to be used for stunt shots or staircases, but rather as it was intended to be used as a tool which can help get the lens where it's wanted in space and time without the classic limitations of the dolly and crane. That's right. I mean, like, to me... The Shining and the Steadicam are like synonymous now. Like when I think of Steadicam, I think of The Shining like right off the bat. Yeah. Right. Because this was one of the first times that the Steadicam was used at sort of a lower level, right? Am I saying that right? I mean, they're like following the... Well, only five other films had done it 
at around that time, it was one of the first six films to ever use a Steadicam. <laughs> Everything else was Dolly or Crane Shot for the slow. And moves. it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I was looking through some of my thoughts about The Shining that I wrote while I was watching it, and one of them just says, "Oh my God, the Steadicam!" <laughs> right? I mean, that's enough. It's enough to say like it's it's that iconic in this particular movie, and to have the inventor of it himself shoot your movie for you on it you know <laughs> i mean for real and i didn't know that so i i i think it's just amazing right and you could totally tell i mean you can tell watching this movie that it's groundbreaking right i mean even still today like it it looks better than a lot of things are shot yeah so um we talked about earlier during the accolade segment that this got no oscar golden globe nominations which is unheard of for a kubrick, a kubrick movie but I, I don't know how in the world this slipped past the Academy when it comes to like photography. Yeah. I, I just don't get it. Oh yeah. It should have gotten something for photography, cinematography, but I don't know what it was up against in 1980. So who knows? But you know, again, you know, people are going to stick up their nose at horror, but they shouldn't have for yeah. Kubrick Kubrick. So I don't, I don't know. Another thing I really want to talk about is the music, right? And this actually showed up on your top 10 way back when we did top 10 scores, I think, right? Yeah, this movie scares the fucking piss out of me. I mean, like the opening shot of this movie with that, you know, helicopter shot and that the first beats of that music just fill me with so much dread. Like every time I hear it, even without the visual aid, like I am scared when I hear this music. It's so effective to me. And there's a reason for that. The opening theme is like directly from the Dies Irae or the Day of Wrath, four notes associated with death, originally from the Gregorian chant from the 13th century created for funerals right so it's inspired many many other compositions to indicate something grim including mozart's 1791 symphony requiem and uh, brilios's 1830s symphony fantastique The movement actually is called A Dream of a Witch's Sabbath, where his wife comes back to kill him as a witch, essentially. And uh, Giuseppe Verde's 1874 Messa de Requiem. And then finally, it started getting used in silent films like Metropolis, right? And then, like, It's a Wonderful Life uses it when he's about to kill himself. And, of course, most notably, The Shining, which uses it almost completely directly. And let's just compare those first few notes to uh, Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique. Here's The Shining. And here's Symphony Fantastique. See the comparison? Just say yes. Yes. Jess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You couldn't hear it. Yeah. But you will, listeners. They're exactly the same. Exactly the same. They literally lifted it. And so the the opening is is obviously not original, but it strips everything down to where it's not wrapped in or changed in a way. Like we hear it in The Exorcist, Star Wars, The Lion King, Lord of the Rings, way 
more than that, right? But it's kind of changed or it's wrapped in there, like the Emperor's theme of Star Wars. And so it's just like those half-step descending notes that create that dun-dun-dun-dun. And it's in all of those movies. It's in a whole bunch of classical, but it originates with that that 13th century Gregorian chant. And so we've always associated those four notes with death. And so movies have caught on to that long before The Shining, but most notably in The Shining because it uses it so directly and stripped down. But um, I just thought that was really interesting because it was a it was a perfect opportunity to talk about the origin of that theme, even though I have to say the rest of the film scoring by a lot of the hand-picked tracks that were pre-existing, just like Kubrick did in 2001 on Space Odyssey, but all of the custom scored uh, tracks by Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkind was really, really effective. And it kind of reminds me of the scores that came afterwards, like Alien and Aliens, um, you know, which is supposed to be the shining in space, right? Is how they they marketed at least one of those. Um, there's a lot of motifs, I, I think, like uh, just cues that remind me of those. And of course, this came before, at least Aliens. There was a point in the movie, I think, uh, right around the time where Danny is like noticing Room 237 for the first time, right? And the, the music makes such a sound that it reminded me so much of Poltergeist. I don't know why. I mean, like, there were some like synthy sounds, you know, and it, it sounded to me a lot like, like Poltergeist did, or at least, you know, and I was like, well, apparently, like, this is what ghost movies sound like, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the movie and I think the music in this movie is very, very effective. Like I've already said, and I mean, all, all the things you talked about and showing those like cues, right. are incredibly fascinating. And I, I wonder how much he had input in this and what he wanted to do. Obviously he makes movies where he takes other tracks and things like that. But I think the, the music is so like subtly haunting or bombastically scary in this movie. It's, it's a fine, fine line. Yeah, I think, right? you know, I think that is definitely something that he was well intended. He was meticulous, right? And so he probably worked his composers <laughs> like he did his actors and actresses and crew, as well as handpicking those other tracks like he did for 2001 A Space Odyssey. There's nothing in 2001 A Space Odyssey that, that is original, right? It's all mm-hmm. like pre-recorded stuff from old operas or plays or things like that or classical pieces, you know? And so this is no different, except it does have its own track. In fact, like a good half of it was not used and was later released in the uh, the missing tracks of history or something like that. There's a collection. And so if you want to go back and listen to the intended tracks for The Shining and cues of, of scenes that were actually cut, then you can go and see that. Good. I think I would like to, actually. And um, I stand by my choice of keeping this in my top 10 scores, even though I know that it wasn't quite, you know, written for the movie, but it is effective and very, very scary. Also, the use of, uh, you know, an older song as something that's, you know, light and breezy, but actually terrifies you. It's one of the, I don't know if it's the earliest example, but it is the most notable for me. And that is the use of the song Midnight, the Stars and You by Ray Noble and his orchestra. Yeah, I, I find it scary in the context of this movie, right? But it doesn't like give me tiptoe through the tulips kind of like scare, <laughs> well, you know? That was just abusive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think it's effective in this. I think like the use of that song really like gives you a sense of what time period you're supposed to be thinking things are happening in, right? And I think at the end of the movie, it's a really good like capper to everything that happened. Because the movie ends like kind of abruptly, right? Yeah. 
And then we're given that really long, like, tracking scene into the photograph, and you're listening to this song play that we've already heard before. But um, it's haunting. And, and, and Well, I love that the credits, the end credits use it, right? Uh-huh. And, it, and, it, and it happens with that, uh, the reveal of the, the photograph at the end. And I thought it was just perfect music choice. And, and honestly, some of the best music choices I've seen are in a Kubrick film. You know, 2001 A Space Odyssey. I can't imagine the first reveal of the spaceship over planet Earth done still photographically real to this day, even though it was 1968 before Star Wars, anything like that, playing nothing, anything else but the Blue Danube. And, and like Kubrick does this a lot too. I think that his music choices and A Clockwork Orange are also mm-hmm. both like, you know, unexpected and take on a different meaning than what, you know, the original, you know, recording of that song had in mind, right? Singing in the Rain and things like that. I mean, it's just, he really knows how to take music that you have heard before and ruining it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean to to be like quite like quite plain about it or just like making you think about it in a different sense. You're like, well, you know, you only thought you liked this song, but you'll never think about it the same way again, you know, right? Mm-hmm. Ruined. Yeah. <laughs> also wanted to mention, just as a quick note, that the poster was done by Saul Bass. Right. He also did films like Anatomy of Murder and Vertigo. Uh, a lot of Hitchcock films and things like that, which also, of course, inspired our own film flamers style and logo. Yay. And we're quite proud of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a famous, famous. I do like designer. the poster for this movie. I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there were a couple, but like the original poster and the one that, um, you know, was circulated when the time the movie was released was different and special and you know mysterious yes and actually it was supposed to be bright red instead of the sickly yellow i don't know that yellow like really does something for it i don't like the color yellow i think it's off-putting right and so when something is like that starkly yellow i'm just like ugh, you know and it just really does something for this you'd think if anything i'd be like white you know but Mm. i don't know it was supposed to be red for the blood and i looked at the original design uh of the poster and i like it on red you know, really? Yeah, I do. But, you know, of course, who knows? Uh, Kubrick is Kubrick, so he has his reasons. If only he'd written a book. Well, do you want to slide into something more comfortable? Uh, what do you mean? Like documentary style? Like uh, the meaning and weird theories. <laughs> yeah, one and the same. Or, you know, um, finding meaning where none exists. Yeah. So uh, have you seen the movie, the documentary Room 237? No. So a couple of years ago, I had seen online all these people talking about this documentary about The Shining and about, you know, sort of what people think it means. And I was fascinated by the idea. So I sat down and I watched it. It's by this director named Rodney Asher. And essentially, it's really just um, like snippets of The Shining and other Kubrick movies sort of like pieced together. But in the background or like a voiceover, you get to hear these like four or five people talking about what they think The Shining means and why (laughs) and how they pinpoint in the movie what Kubrick was trying to say about it, you know, to sort of like feed their own interpretation of the movie, right? And it it starts out sort of, you know, easygoing and you're like, oh, maybe. But like the the more they start talking about it, the more it gets a little bit more conspiracy theory-esque, crackpot-esque, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I hate to use that word, right? But um, no, you're right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's an entire documentary. These people talking about, you know, what they think the shining is and it goes from like multiple things of like genocide to you know um 
you know, fake mood landings and whatnot. Oh, yeah. And it's just a really like wild ride. No, I have so. a whole list we can go through. Well, I'm sure that it's everything from that movie. So why don't you tell me some of the things that you have on your list? And then we'll talk about the ending of the documentary, you know, at the end of it. Yeah, I have the, the three main theories, right? The first one is actually not crackpot. It's just from Roger Ebert. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like me. And that's his unreliable narrator theory, right? And he's he's saying that he's he's arguing that Kubrick is telling a story with ghosts, like the two girls, the former caretaker and the bartender, but it isn't a ghost story because the ghosts may not actually be present in any sense at all, except as visions experienced by Jack or Danny. Oh, uh, that's not true, though, I know. because when Wendy is running around the hotel, she sees ghosts. I know. He's written about this so many times, and he, he put a whole write-up about it in his, like, best movies of 100 years or whatever and he's just like i'm just like roger watch the movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like there are ghosts in this hotel i think i think we can all say that there are ghosts there for real so the second major uh conspiracy theory or actually i would say the first is about the native americans right and so it's this big analogy about native americans so reporter bill uh blakemore's general argument is that there is a um, that the film is a metaphor for the genocide of Native Americans. And he notes that when Jack kills Halloran, the dead body is seen lying on a rug with an Indian motif, right? So the, the blood in the ele- elevator shafts is supposed to be like for Blakemore, the blood of the Indians in the burial ground on which the hotel was built, you know, and the date of the final photograph, July 4th is meant to be ironic. Hmm. <laughs> no, <laughs> the whole, the whole thing about the hotel is Native American. They even talk about it in the film, as far as like the styling, you know, and the stained glass and things like that and all the patterns there, you know, but as far as any kind of analogy to that, there's also a theory about the Holocaust about yep. this. And and it's just, I think it's just trying to find meaning in, in nothing. So uh, Bill Blakemore is one of the interviewees for Rodney Asher's mm. movie, Room 237. And he even goes so far as to say that Kubrick used um, canisters of calumet baking powder, right? Which have an Indian on it. Right. And that um, if the canister is facing head on to the camera, you sort of understand or you can view that as truth. But if the Calumet baking powder canisters are like tilted in such a way that you can't see them straight on, you can't take what's on screen as the truth at that point. I mean, he really goes deep into this theory about like the genocide of native Americans. He talks so much about like peace pipes and things when he's talking about this movie too. And like the more he talks about it, like uh, the more I want to believe him because he, he obviously believes it for himself, but I just no, that's not, that's how cult members happen. Don't do it. (laughs) Go watch dances with wolves. (sighs) Or the last Mohican. <laughs> what else you got? So, of course, finally is the moon landing conspiracy, right? So, there's a conspiracy separate from the film, actually, that Kubrick was uh-huh. hired by the U.S. government and/or NASA to fake the moon landing while he was filming 2001: A Space Odyssey, and that he left clues to that effect in The Shining. So, fringe analysis explains that the the room change from 217 in the novel to room 237 in the film is symbolic of the approximate 237,000 miles between the Earth and the Moon. When it's actually 238,900. Yeah, and also in at least one scene featuring room 237, Danny is wearing that chunky knit, that handmade sweater that says uh, Apollo 11 on it. Which I would wear, by the way, because <laughs> I do love a chunky knit. But the reason they, you know, changed that from 217 to 237 is because the outside shots 
of this movie were from a lodge in Oregon, and they were afraid that people were not going to want to stay in room 217, so they changed it to a room that doesn't exist in their property. But, I mean... To this day, as far as I think, uh, 217 at that lodge is the most requested room. No, it is. To their surprise, it <laughs> yeah. is. Now, um, another thing is, of course, in 2001 A Space Odyssey, of course, they did a lot of, of great science to get the look of it right. Like daytime on the moon, they didn't really show stars in the background as much. You know, it looks pretty photographic even to this day. Like, again, it's 1968, way ahead of its time. But they got the gravity all wrong. And so they're all just kind of standing around like normal gravity, just moving around normally in his film. Mm-hmm. And that's the opposite of what it is, of course, in real life and in the actual moon landing videos. So, you know, this has been debunked a hundred different ways. And, you know, if you believe in these sort of things, then you're probably like a half step to QAnon or something. So stop. <laughs> <laughs> or you'll be banned from Twitter. <laughs> All right, I have to say, like, I really enjoy this documentary, Room 237. I really wholeheartedly recommend it. And Rodney Asher has made another documentary about sleep paralysis, which is also very scary. Like, this man understands how to make a scary documentary. Mm. And there are moments when you're, like, listening to these people talk about their theories, and you sort of get transfixed by it. Yeah. And it becomes a horror movie of its own, right? Ultimately, I think that... This documentary is not about The Shining. It's really about the dangers of overinterpretation, right? And I mean, I'm saying this coming from a person who has a podcast about horror movies that we interpret, right? And I have been known to overinterpret myself. I mean, hell, throw a poem in front of me and I'll write you 500 words on the first two stanzas. Sometimes a flower is just a flower. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. So, but I mean, I don't know. I think it's fascinating that people can watch a movie like this and sort of like get these ideas and run with it. And some of these people have built an entire career about trying to prove it. And, oh, no. Um, when I was in film school, I had to write essays on this sort of thing and be like, well, talk about this and the symbolism in the scene. And so I think I took a scene from like Pleasantville and there was a person in a black shirt on the left of someone's shoulder and a person in a white shirt over the person's right. And like, this is the angel on their shoulder, this is the devil on their shoulder, blah, blah, blah. And they're having this evil versus good conversation in this diner. And it was all just bullshit, you know? And I got an A on that paper. And it's just, you know, you can make this shit up because you're just overanalyzing. And it's like, no (laughs) no i mean i can see the other side of it too though because there is i mean i i have some pretty selfish interpretations of things especially literature or film or music right that i i hold dear and i think is very truthful to my own person right my own experience but i would never go to the links that some of these people have done to try to like explain Something that's so oh, like no. conspiracy or yeah. I mean, like I just don't understand. There that. are many films out there that are analogies or symbolic for something else, like Mother, right? You know, there's a lot out there that are about something else than they are really about, you know. So those are fairly easy to spot, and their writers and directors and cast are always very eager to talk about that sort of thing, you know. Yeah. Versus you go to Jack Nicholson or you know Shelley Duvall or any of these cameramen or anything else, and they're like, "What is The Shining about?" And they're going to tell you, you know, it's about you know a possessed father about to destroy his family, you know, essentially. And you can you can chalk that up to an analogy for alcoholism, or you can just say it's a ghost story. But there it is. I mean, I, I fully think that, yes, there are some really outstanding themes in The Shining, both the movie and the book, right? And I think that both of them explore them differently, mm-hmm. right? Like, I come from a family whose father quit drinking when I was young, right? I understand firsthand what it's like to have to, like, you know, lose something that you're addicted to and what it 
what kind of a toll it takes on your family and yourself. And when I watch The Shining, I can sort of like put myself in that particular situation, right? Like I understand what my father went through when he, when he had to do this sort of thing. And it is scary. And, um, you know, so that's where it sort of ends, right? Like I just don't see any moon landing shit. I don't see any like genocide stuff going on. They decorated it in Native American stuff because it was around a part of the country where there's a lot of Native Americans, you know? I mean, like... I don't know. I think if you're going to talk about the themes of this movie and the symbolism involved, you don't have to go very deep to find it. Yeah, that. no, I agree. So I have some fun facts if you'd like to digress. Yes, please, because I always enjoy them, and I'm sure there are many fun, fun facts about this movie. So, outtakes from the sweeping helicopter shots we were talking about at the beginning of the film were later used by Ridley Scott for the closing moments of the original cut of Blade Runner. Oh my god, did they have a fight about this like afterward or did you just like give it to him like easily? Like got it. You know, it's um I think it was just 2 years later, 1982, the original Blade Runner or something around there and um the original ending had them kind of escaping into the open land away from the shitty, you know, gigantic mega city that it was LA or whatever it was at the time. And mm-hmm. so they ended it that way as going into nature, you know, as, as exiting to Eden. <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah. And so, of course, that was the first cut, which was shitty. And so they they, they ended a lot better in, in later cuts, you know. But yeah, I, I do actually remember seeing the original cut. And I remember seeing that and kind of remembering, hey, that's is that from this? <laughs> so it has been so long since I've seen Blade Runner and I I'm, I'm waiting to rewatch it. Cause I also want to watch the, the, the new, yeah, one. you'll want to watch the final cut, not the directors, but you'll want to watch the final cut. There's like six different versions. Well, I think at this point when I do watch Blade Runner and the, the sequel, I'm going to have to watch them with you in your theater setup. Cause I just can't think of any other way to do it. There you go. So Jack Nicholson reportedly wanted Jessica Lang for the role of Wendy Torrance. Wow. Mm-hmm. I think she would have been great as far as the novel's version. Oh, yeah, for sure. Especially in 1980. <laughs> Kubrick explained that for his version, he wanted someone more emotionally fragile. <laughs> so Nicholson later said of Shelley Duvall's performance, she had the toughest job that any actor that I've ever seen has had. Based on the stuff that you told me about this, too, like I like I totally see that. And uh, I kind of feel bad for Shelley Duvall. Like, really. You know, and when I hear stories about directors doing things to their actors i mean like friedkin does it sometimes like firing guns where they don't expect it right i mean like you have to draw a line and be like enough is enough and i think that jessica lang probably would have walked over to stanley kubrick and beat him about the ear nose and throat (laughs) no ear probably (laughs) so the door that jack chops through with the axe near the end of the film is real Kubrick originally shot this scene with a fake door, but Nicholson, who had worked as a volunteer fire marshal and a firefighter in the California Air National Guard, tore through it too quickly. (laughs) And, of course, his line here is Johnny is, of course, taken from Ed McMahon's introduction to The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson, but that was improvised by Nicholson. Do you think at this point it's dated, right? Do you think people watching The Shining who are much younger than us have no idea what the fuck that I didn't means? know what it meant when I first watched it because I, I, I didn't watch Johnny Carson when I was a kid. No, but it already entered pop culture, though. I mean, maybe I was just like a weird 11-year-old, but I, I knew what here's Johnny Well, you're was, also a so. number of years older than me. I remember my ass. I'm like two years older than you. <laughs> oh, what's next? I'm in my 30s. <laughs> So, yeah, according to Shelley Duvall, the infamous Here's Johnny scene took three days to film and the use of 60 doors. 
Jesus Christ. Again, I have to scroll back up on our notes to check this budget. I mean, like, it was really cheap to us, obviously. <laughs> yeah, probably all the fake ones. And finally, I had to use the real one. <laughs> oh, but about that, uh, here's Johnny line. Uh, Kubrick had been living in England for uh, a while, right? And so he didn't actually get it. And he was going to use a different cut before he was told. And so he finally used that take. Yeah, Plate of Americans. Mm-hmm. Come on. So, of course, Stanley Kubrick known for his compulsiveness and numerous retakes, got the difficult shot of blood pouring from the elevators in only three takes. What? Yeah. (laughs) Now, hold on to yourself. (laughs) Because this would be unremarkable if it weren't for the fact that the shot takes nine days to set up. (laughs) And every time the doors opened and the blood poured out, Kubrick would say, it doesn't look like blood. So in the end, the shot took approximately a year to get right. (laughs) (laughs) i don't know that's not funny it's really sad though can you imagine being on that set i mean like (laughs) oh my god okay so stanley kubrick originally wanted slim pickens from the howling to play the part of halloran no (laughs) but pickens wanted nothing to do with kubrick following his experience working with him on dr strangelove (laughs) was general bastard from thanks killing going to play danny torrance (laughs) Oh my God, can you imagine <laughs> the levels of acting he would have brought to that role? General Bastard for Sheer artistry. I mean, like, really, but. <laughs> and the honor of the most retakes goes to the scene between Dick Halloran and Danny Torrance talking about their shine at 148 takes. That is ridiculous. What was the other number for that? 120-something. But this was 148, and that was between Dick Halloran and Danny Torrance, and that has the Guinness, to this day, Guinness Book World of Records for the most takes of a scene. Um, poor child. There's literally no action in that scene. It's two people sitting at a table. But it does involve a child. So Scatman Crothers had to do that 148 times. Jesus. That long-ass monologue. Christ. <laughs> it is good, though. I mean, I really hope that the, the scene that's in the movie is like the like 148th take and not the first one. You know what I mean? Because that would be like bullshit. <laughs> I would have been like, fuck you, Stanley. I'm going home. <laughs> I think I remember reading an article with Scatman Crothers like talking about that experience and saying, finally, you know, after like the 50th take coming up to and saying, hey, you know, what's what's going on, you know, and, and Kubrick said something to the effect of I just want to get it perfect, you know, I'll, I'll tell you when it's done, you know, and so we just kept doing it. You know, but maybe that's how you direct a child do it 148 takes until they're so glazed over. <laughs> <laughs> that they just start acting like an adult. I don't know. No wonder he started talking out of his finger like that. <laughs> Happy Kubrick. Like, no, Mr. Kubrick. <laughs> it's not Danny. It's Tony. <laughs> He's like completely checked out. <laughs> Jesus. Daddy's not here, Mr. Mr. Kubrick. That's exactly what happened. I'm pretty sure we've well, two of the main like, characters have the same first names point. as their characters' first names, which is interesting to me. But yeah, yeah. and um, in the novel too, I don't think I pointed this out earlier, but um, like his middle name is Anthony. It's Danny Anthony Torrance, and so Tony. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. Read the book. Makes it's real sense. Good. Those were fun facts. Very fun. I do not want to work with Stanley Kubrick ever, and thankfully, I won't have. To. <laughs> so. 
but we have some questions to ask about The Shining, like we do have every movie that we deep dive into. And the first question, we're going to reword a little bit for 2021, right? Do you consider The Shining to be a straight-up horror movie or horror-adjacent, and why? I think it is a straight-up horror movie. Not only because of the things you see on screen with all of the ghosts and everything else, but you know, even just considering Kubrick's quote that we mentioned earlier about the reason why horror is even a thing is to experience, you know, human evilness and, and horror and terror kind of at a, at a distance. So we don't have to experience it ourselves, you know? And so I think that's the kind of the definition of horror. And I think this has every element that you would need Um, analogous definition of horror, uh, straight up on screen definition of horror, you know, blood and guts and ghosts and, family trauma and it's all there yeah i have to agree with you i mean like there there have been times that i've watched the shining and have said you know this is not a horror movie right i I would say that the themes of it are sort of horror adjacent dealing with the family trauma and the family dynamic right but like ultimately it's a movie about ghosts Mm -hmm. and we get to see the ghosts and to visually terrifying effect and I, so yeah, I think this is a straight up horror movie. Um, I know that a lot of people watch it and don't consider it to be that. And I think that these are the people who can't really appreciate a slow burn when it comes to horror, right? Yeah. And I'm probably the same people that would say that they have to be scared for it to be considered a horror movie. And I disagree with that wholeheartedly. Okay. So it's interesting that you mentioned this question because it, it brings to mind one of the other anecdotes that I didn't put in the fun facts, but is kind of interesting, is that they told Danny, the child actor who's playing Danny Torrance, that they, he was shooting a drama. And so for the longest time, he thought that was the case. And I think they even gave him a special cut of the film that just made it more of a drama. And so he didn't oh. actually see the full cut until he was 17 years old. And then he realized it was a horror movie. Oh, really yeah. that that's an extra fun fact like for sure and i mean i can see this movie going in either direction right i mean if i mean just a couple cuts in certain places and it makes it more of like a really intense drama and not a horror yeah. movie like it's a, there's a fine line you know and so i think asking the question is this a horror movie is way too vague and way too open-ended yeah. you know you know but um i think a lot of horror movies can go either way yeah right uh, with that being said, though, were you scared watching The Shining? You know, um, I think it was the f- first couple times, maybe. This time, I anticipate everything. And like I even said, I know where the music music cues are. <laughs> you yeah. know, um, still to this day, what creeps me out is that that old corpse's laugh as Jack is trying to escape room 237. That room always scared me the most and it doesn't scare me now, but it still gives me like little chills, like hearing that lady's laugh, you know? And, uh, I looked, you know, it's like, and I don't think either of those actresses, the young version and the old version of the lady in two, three, seven acted before or after that movie. That was the only thing they ever did. And that, that lady's iconic laugh. I don't know if it was voiceover or not was, is just still just spine chilling to me to this day. Yeah, I agree. I think the entire sequence in Room 237 is horrifying. And I, I think some of the scariest moments are not from like the, the corpse woman. I think like watching that woman slowly pull that curtain back in the bathroom, right? And get out of the bathtub and walk toward him. It gets shot in such a way that it's like terrifies me. But I am scared all through The Shining. Mm-hmm. And 
I mean, no matter how many times I watch it, I am scared and in the same spots. Right. And I think that that like really shows some masterful direction when it comes to making a horror movie and making it effective. Everything from the music cues that scare me to like the visuals that scare me. Um, My parents have a funny story. So like whenever I was watching horror movies as a kid, they all often talked about the shining, right? Because there was some like pre cable service that they subscribed to when I was younger. And they only showed movies like after seven o'clock at night and they would show it on repeat that particular evening. So my parents started watching the shining and they turned it off because they got too scared. And then they were talking about it and they had to go back, but they had to wait for the movie to start over again. And so through the course of this evening, they finally made it all the way through The Shining, but they kept turning it off because they were getting scared by yeah. it. Right. And I think this movie is like just good at that. I think that in the right moments, this movie will scare you and, you know, has enough like story to get you through the entire thing. But I, to me, it's a frightening, frightening movie. So out of five stars, what would you rate The Shining? I give it four stars. You know, like Stephen King, I think that it's missing some sort of warmth or soul that it's kind of starving for. And I think that's the point of the movie is that, you know, that's missing. But like Stephen King said, you have to see it first before you miss it, before it's a tragedy. And I think that makes the film slightly less effective at a human level. Uh, at a technical level and a performance level, you know, and even really as a film level, I think it is great, you know, and so I can't give it a perfect five stars, but I definitely give it a place of a high rating of four for me. Well, you have taken the words directly out of my mouth. I would also give it four stars. And for those very reasons, I think that, you know, watching a movie, any movie, horror or non, I think this is sort of a masterclass in direction and filmmaking. And, um, like, it's not very often that I'll watch a movie and be able to be like, that is an important shot in cinema history, right? Or I can see what technology they're using to make this important, right? But I see it in The Shining. And also, I think as a horror movie, it's very effective. Like, it scares me. But there's something missing for me to give it a perfect rating, right? And I think a lot of it comes down to characterizations and motivations and... And and that and also I'm a I'm a big fan of Stephen King yeah. and I like the novel and it really comes down to like every other viewing as to whether or not I love or hate The Shining. It just so happens over my last couple of viewings I love it. So four stars. You know, it kind of reminds me of The Lodge, kind of like the same thing The Lodge was missing, you know, a human element, a warmth to it. And of course, The Lodge gets it way, way, way more wrong than The Shining. Yeah. The Shining has some warmth, certainly compared to The Lodge. You know, but it just reminds me of that where they they strike a tone and they go too far in that direction and they make it just, you know, a wet Grinch salad. (laughs) You're right. And I didn't even think about this comparison, really, but you're right. I mean, like The Lodge has some similar moments that make it, you know, not a good movie, but The Shining redeems itself in places The Lodge does not. That's amazing. I'm glad that you brought that up. So finally, who's the hottest guy in The Shining? Oh, fuck. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Oh, God.
DeCaloran. Yeah, I mean, like if I were if I were choosing someone, not maybe on like an attractive level, but someone I'd want to spend time with, right? I would choose DeCaloran. Yeah, he's like that. You know, has that quality that I I tend to like again and again and again. The, the person that's a little bit more genre savvy, the person that's wise, the person that's smart, the person that's empathetic and cares. You know, he's obviously supposed to be you know the good person, the hero, really the soul of the movie almost, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, or at least our moral compass or something. And that's important. And I really dug his character and I'm, and I'm just, I hate it every time he, he gets killed in this, in this movie, you know, if, and it's not him is the guy that sat up on the bed. <laughs> <laughs> not the guy. In the, the half second he was in the film. I think he was kind of cute. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I really think that like DeCaloran really is the warmth of this movie, right? And I, I kind of feel like he understands how to treat a lover, right? Because he flew from Florida all the way to Colorado in the middle of a snowstorm to save somebody. I'm like, you know what? He probably knows how to treat a lady or me. Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on The Shining. I'm feeling especially cold. I mean, because it is winter, Mm -hmm. right? But as we've alluded to throughout this conversation, our conversation is not done. Yes, it will continue next week with Dr. Sleep. That's right. The sequel to The Shining, which Chris and I talked about in the hot take many moons ago, and we're super willing to talk about it. If The Shining left you freezing in the dark, Dr. Sleep will warm you up. That's right. So, as always, we want to know what you think about The Shining and our discussion about it. You can find us on social media at The Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or better yet, call our hotline, please, at 972-666-7733. That's right. Every month we have a Shooting the Flames episode. We like to read reviews. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or anywhere, really, uh, leave us a review and why you like us. We'll read it on there. And go visit patreon.com slash thefilmflamers to find all of our bonus content. And we'll shout your name out on our next Shooting the Flames episode. This month we'll be covering... Children of the Car. That's right. Kids on the Cob. Kids on the Cob. <laughs> So head on over to Patreon if you want to hear what we say about those rascally kids in those (laughs) cornfields. And get episodes sometimes weeks early. That's right. For as little as $2 a month. Well, Chris, I think I need to go see if there's an imaginary ghost bar in my house and see if someone can pour me a drink. Yeah, I'm right there with you, buddy. (laughs) It's medicine. I want some avocado and bourbon. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody. Until next time. Sweet dreams. Chris is a hamster. Oh my god, that's so funny. Jeez, I was gonna be like, here's dreams, but no, that was much better. <laughs> <laughs> okay.